How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected global connectedness? Is a lack of foreign visitors affecting foreign investment? Which countries are punching above their weight and who's being left behind? Find all this and more in DHL's Global Connectedness Index 2020. Get your free copy at dhl.com forward slash GCI. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen, the number one podcast in the country for about five days in June. Uh, I'm your host, Jim Minns, and it is fantastic to be joined once again by the Wigs, the high-profile, low-brow Emmanuel Kirkusharian. Low-brow? Good evening. I mean, you know, good evening to you. Felicity Graham. How are you? I'm great. Love that I have Off you back. the back of some wins. Yes, congratulations. No doubt we'll get to those. And uh, So modest. <laughs> well, what? Look, you got to you got to ring your own bell on the show. And may I introduce the deputy mayor of Dubbo, Mr. Stephen Lawrence? Well, thank you for using the titles, mate. I don't choose them. His worship, <laughs> his excellence. No, the mayor's a worship. You I don't think the deputy's a worship? No, I no. worship you, Stephen. And he's only a worship in council meetings. Right. Mm. I'm very strict about that. Heaven forbid what you refer to him after the the fact after the meetings <laughs> and for those listeners wondering who is making that chewing sound oh, it's Stephen yes. even oh, though we had just agreed that we wouldn't be eating it. yeah good stuff mate is that a, like a sort of revenge sledge is it <laughs> I think you deserve it I'm sorry you were uh, look uh, from the feedback we've received uh, through social media uh, listeners of the Wigs have been dying for uh, an update on the Wigs take on the judicial system and uh, we're going to get started with it, starting off with topic number one. We're going to you, Emmanuel Kirkusharian. Now, first question, Emmanuel. <laughs> yes. What has a manufacturer of bagless vacuum cleaners got to do with the Australian High Court anyway? <laughs> Look, can I just say, I'm not, a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan of those vacuum cleaners. I have a Mealy myself. Yes. I'm not being paid to promote them. No. I, I, having experienced both, I prefer the Mealy. But can I concur? Look. Last month, June 2020, the Chief Justice of Australia, the Honourable Susan Kiefel, published an extraordinary statement concerning allegations of sexual harassment against a former puny justice of the High Court. Uh, Those allegations had been received in 2019 by the court and an investigation, according to Justice Kiefel's statements, the Chief Justice's statement, had been conducted by Dr Vivian Tom. Uh, who had been at some stage the Inspector General of Security and Intelligence and was an independent consultant and an intellectual, uh, sorry, an intelligence specialist that the High Court appointed to conduct the investigation. Um, according to her honest statement, that investigation found that six former court staff who <coughs> were judges' associates had been harassed by the former justice. The statement contains an apology. Her Honour said that she was ashamed at what had occurred, that the other justices were ashamed. Her Honour 
said, noted that it would be difficult, it would have been difficult for those people to come forward. She said their accounts of their experiences at this time, or at the time rather, have been believed. Uh, Her Honour said that she'd spoken to the complainants, taken their feedback and suggestions and apologised to them in person. Uh, The Chief Justice noticed that a number of women had requested confidentiality. She asked that that be respected and then confirmed that the subject of the investigation was Dyson Hayden. Right. Uh, the Chief Justice then set out in this in this statement the measures that have been put in place to, quote, make sure the experiences of these women will not be repeated. Uh, and that was pretty much the end of the statement. Mr Hayden denied any impropriety through his lawyers. Um, they put out a statement. That statement said, amongst other things, that the inquiry was an internal administrative inquiry conducted by a public servant and not a lawyer, judge or tribunal member, was conducted without statutory powers of investigation and without the administering of affirmations or oaths. The inquiry did not afford any opportunity for representatives of the person complained of to confront those complaining or to cross-examine them. That's a quote from the statement made on Mr Hayden's behalf. Uh, so effectively complaining about procedural fairness. Mm. Uh, and the statement went on to say, our client says that if if any conduct of his has caused offence, that result was inadvertent and unintended, and he apologises for any offence caused, and he asked, and they had asked the High Court to convey that to the associate complainants. Um, since then, we've learnt that three female lawyers who have accused... Mr Hayden of sexual harassment will pursue financial compensation from the retired judge personally and also from the Commonwealth. I think there are negotiations going on with the Commonwealth and also I understand that the ACT police have launched an investigation or are considering launching an investigation um, and I don't want to talk too much about that for obvious reasons. And that's following a referral from the DPP of the ACT? That's right. Yeah, which was seemed a slightly unusual step to me. I mean, the DPP is obviously the prosecuting authority. Mm. He or she wouldn't normally be the complainant in such a matter. But, and I infer from the contents of media reports that he wrote a letter to the AFP enclosing media reports. Um, And it seems unclear whether that referral was after any consultation with complainants or people who were said to have been uh, indecently assaulted by him, potentially. So pretty unusual step. It'll be interesting to see if the AFP do think there's something there, how that then fits with the role of the prosecuting authority when they've, in effect, become the complainant. And if... I mean, it's incredible to think about the prospects of a trial in circumstances where the Chief Justice of Australia has said you have been believed, Mm. whether or not you could have a fair trial... And on the face of it, in light of that statement, one wonders how any of those justices could hear a final appeal from any trial or any interlocutory matter, mm. given that they have expressed effectively the same sentiment through the Chief Justice. It um, sounds like the potential offences <coughs> might be matters heard in front of a magistrate rather than a jury, so maybe that might make it easier. Yeah. Uh, assuming that they're indecent assault offences of some nature. So, Don't mm. um, But the statement from the Chief Justice is absolutely extraordinary. Um, I don't know that any justice has ever made any statement of that, any 
High Court Chief Justice has ever made any statement like that. Indeed, justices tend not to speak out of court um, as a rule. Um, the response to this generally, uh, you can imagine the upheaval that this caused in the legal profession, in the community generally, and perhaps quite rightly. Um, I have to say, I mean, I, I'm not a woman and I, I've not experienced sexual harassment, but I was both disturbed by the fact of this and the f- suggestion that this might have been going on at the highest court of the land, or was, if, if, if one accepts the Chief Justice's position as one ought, I suppose. Um, but I was also kind of, in a sense, buoyed by the fact that the Chief Justice had come out and said this, because now you have at least somebody at the highest level of power in our profession standing up and saying something like this. And that's got to... F- I imagine that feels good to people who have been in similar situations or who are worried about facing similar situations, um, to know that at least at even at that level you can have somebody stand up and fight for you. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the bar associations around Australia and other various legal bodies have all issued statements um, about this in general terms or lightly condemning it if they if they dared or otherwise saying that, you know, this is horrible or the sorts of things that one might expect them to say and issued some guidance on what to do. Yeah, where to from here? Well, it, the interesting thing about the guidance is, I mean, in a sense, the guidance is these are the people you can contact. And that, on the face of it, must be useful. Um but and, and certain other guidance about things to do and so on. But I spent the last over the last couple of weeks I've reviewed all of the guidance from the state from the New South Wales Bar Association and some of the articles that have been read and that, written and so on. And one of the things that struck me is that that's all well and good and in fact important, undoubtedly important. But whether or not that will achieve the cultural reform that you really need to stop this sort of thing happening um, or to provide, perhaps more importantly, complainants with the power to push back against it themselves without recourse or with minimal recourse to other powers is something that I'm not sure about. But I've no doubt... I mean, I've started having discussions with colleagues about these sorts of things, and I'm sure that those discussions will happen at the bar. So what can we do? What do you do when a young man or woman walks into your chambers and says, I've just been sexually harassed by a silk on my floor. Mm. Um, I don't want you to fucking tell anybody about this because I'm scared about my career. There's guidance about what you should do and who you should talk to and so on. But what do you actually say? Mm. What do you actually do? What's the next thing? What, what, once you've completed what you need to do as a matter of risk aversion and a matter of law and to help them out, what do you actually do after that? How do you? What, what's the next conversation you have? What's the next conversation you have with that silk who's allegedly assaulted or harassed them? What's the next conversation you have with that person? When do you check up on them? How do we make sure they're not worried about work, right? Because... I think particularly at the lower rungs of the legal profession making complaints, one of the biggest fears must be that you'll be you'll lose your work mm. and so you might be quiet and you know. I don't think we can underestimate the impact of Chief Justice Kaifel's public statement mm. in terms of <coughs> being uh, a 
an agent of change and of culture within the profession and potentially more broadly in society generally. I was reflecting on it being quite extraordinary for the High Court to take that position and make a public statement declaring that these complainants have been believed in circumstances where at least some of the conduct raises the potential for criminal proceedings and how that then might affect any such later proceedings brought against Mr Hayden for criminal offending. Mm. But it seems to me that it was of so much importance, and bearing in mind that the High Court um, investigation was on balance of probabilities in the context of that employment relationship and is not purporting to make a finding beyond reasonable doubt, but it seems to me of such critical importance to public confidence in the administration of justice that faced with these allegations, the court, it was incumbent on the court to embark upon this thorough investigation and then make these public findings and say, we do not tolerate this kind of behaviour in our own wings. And to say, we want to be part of the solution and adopt the recommendations that were made by Ms Tom and also I think it is it has had already an impact in terms of other courts reflecting on their own processes reflecting on the fact that tip staves and associates have this very special and unusual employment relationship but they have to be able to have recourse to some kind of system that can protect their rights at work and make them so they can ensure their safety at work even though they play this quite unusual role in terms of working um, for a judicial officer sometimes in in a very one-on-one kind of situation and in many ways the work is um, shrouded in secrecy and so on because you're literally behind the scenes of the justice system. Mm. Um, And there's been, I think, some... Sorry to cut you off there, but that's really interesting because there is a, a, a secrecy beyond... You know, so that surrounds uh, chambers of of a, of a, of a, of a I imagine the judge, especially at the highest levels, and so you would think that that kind of what is is the perception there that the kind of silence extends beyond the matters of the court, and therefore nothing leaves this room. So that's one of the things that I think has been made really clear is that the obligations of confidentiality of an associate or a tip staff relate to the work of the court and you're not under some obligation to keep a secret about misbehaviour that goes on in that in the context of that employment relationship. Yeah, so. yeah that's so, but it's very... Um, I mean, it's one of those special relationships that's recognised in employment law as being exempt from unfair dismissal and those sort of regimes because it is such a relationship of trust and confidence. So... Yeah, you know, the secrecy obligations might not apply to misbehaviour and to different things that aren't part of the business of the court. But the nature of the relationship is such that there would always be a tendency for those obligations to bind in all sorts of situations. And 
The reality of that relationship is that it most commonly occurs in circumstances where you have a judge who is right at the top of the the triangle, the, the hierarchy in terms of this judicial system, this justice system that really does um, recognise rank and seniority in so many ways. And usually law graduates in maybe their first year out from university or maybe in the high court after a couple of years of practice as a solicitor, but still very much that huge power imbalance in terms of a very junior person working for a very senior figure in the judicial system. And that that is obviously something that has, well, must be at play in terms of people being reluctant to come forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for my part, I don't understand why such important and sensitive roles are entrusted to people who are no, who are just, you know, very young adults who are basically children. Mm. I don't know why it's entrusted to them. I, it seems to me that a tip staff who's notionally the Batman of a judge, the person who's responsible for their body and looking after the things that they do, that should be, you know, a retired sergeant major or something like that. And or a so, mid-career lawyer who well, can more meaningfully assist with the legal side of things. I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't know why they should be assisting with the legal side of things. You've got counsel to assist a judge um, to provide the research and do all of that, and that can all happen in public, and it can all be done with the mind that one is addressing writing the judgment. I don't know that it should devolve to people, particularly people with very limited or no experience, to be writing even draft judgments mm. that might sway the view of a judge. Um, and I don't... I understand that that gives people career boosts and I understand that it helps judges with what they're doing in terms of lightening their workload. But really, either a person is a tip staff and is a Batman and, and does that role, or they're not. And if we're going to appoint... I think the High Court doesn't have tip staff, so the High Court has two associates per justice... And it just seems to me that those people should be secretarial. So should there be a ban on judges having sexual relations with their associates, do you think? I mean, I sort of ask because I thought her statement was really powerful, but in one sense it's low-hanging fruit because, it I don't know, to my mind it's a pretty obvious uh, proposition that as a judge, you should never initiate a sexual relationship with your associate. Like the relationship I think that is, is totally so, uncontroversial. Yeah, completely uncontroversial. Except that people appoint their husbands and wives as their associates. Yeah, well, that would certainly be an exception to that rule <laughs> if you had your wife right. in that position or it husband. Happens though. But you know, so that's a pretty straightforward proposition that if he has sexually harassed, whether trying to initiate sexual relationships or groping or whatever, his associates that he's engaged in impropriety and there's a powerful message sent out to the legal community about that and also to other judges but maybe the more difficult aspects of sexual harassment are those things that don't occur between a judge and an associate but occur between legal colleagues um, or barristerial colleagues or solicitors and partners or barristers and silks a whole range of things where the question is not so cut and dry in terms of when it's appropriate to, for example, you know, intimate or flirt or suggest the commencement of sexual relations or a whole range of things. 
I don't know how much guidance uh, Chief Justice Kaifel's statement gives in that range of situations. I think it's certainly caused a lot of reflection and people to really confront what is and isn't appropriate. And, of course, there will be people who end up in relationships arising out of relationships that they've formed in a professional context. I mean, that happens Mm. frequently and it's... That that's not a problem, obviously, but and it's not sexual harassment to to try to initiate a relationship necessarily, though it certainly can be. It can be. It all be. depends on a myriad of things. It does. The critical aspects of sexual harassment are that it is an unwelcome sexual mm. advance. Now, that depending on the circumstances may be difficult for a person to gauge at least in an at an initial stage of some kind of relationship but uh, i mean obviously that's worlds apart from the con- type of conduct that has been exposed as part of this investigation and the subsequent reports relating to um, the president of the ACT law society at the Canberra law ball and so on where is there, is there any rule around the architectural design of the High Court of Australia? Why don't they have glass offices? Like just like wall-to-wall glass offices? I'm not sure that he's meant to have done these things in the office, and I haven't read any of the detail that Manny has, but I remember part of his modus, oper- his modus operandi was inviting people out to dinner and social functions and then putting the hard word on them there. So these are... Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> sorry, the, 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 what what Flick just alluded to was that um, there were a whole series of articles published about the same time as the Chief Justice's statement was released concerning allegations against Mr Hayley. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what kicked it off, right? Right. Well, I actually don't know which one came first, but in any event, they came out at the same time, magically. Um, and... One of the things that the Herald reported was that there had been further allegations from, quote, senior legal figures, um, including a judge who claimed that he that Mr Hayden had indecently assaulted her. When she was not a judge. When she was not a judge. Um, and another allegation was that a leading female member of the New South Wales Bar... Um, said that when, this is a quote, said that when the 2017 stories about the Me Too movement broke, her first thought was, boy, Dyson Hayden should be worried. The senior counsel recounted Mr Hayden inviting her to his chambers after she appeared before him during a special leave application in the High Court. Um, According to that unnamed barrister, she'd found Mr Hayden in his socks, in chambers, with champagne on ice. In only his socks? Well, no. No, I, I, presumably not only his socks. Um, maybe. Two glasses laid yeah, out. That's I think, my I think it, point. I, Thanks, Steve. I think it would be relevant. Okay. Um, she I'll says, edit me out. Does that says, work? I'll edit me out. Of that. It's a horrible thought. Anyway. Um, the unnamed barrister said that she knew what he had in mind. That's a quote. Hmm. Um, and she made good her escape after some conversation. That person was described by the Sydney Morning Herald as a quote-unquote top silk. Uh, and later said this top silk uh, 
Mr Hayden had, quote, planted himself on the doorway and then kissed her when she was in his chambers on another occasion after he was a judge. Um, another article I read said that, quote, this is from a from someone who, I'm not sure whether or not it was a victim, but said, rest assured that everyone of any seniority in the Sydney legal community knew all about Dyson Hayden's predations everyone knew even those of us who were minions at the metaphorical coalface they were all too scared Boristine said hundreds knew Mm. and that gives rise to this issue of this culture of silence and for my part whilst I can well understand why an associate or junior member of the bar or junior solicitor might be reluctant to report sexual harassment or any sort of conduct I'm not sure how someone who is a senior, a top sill um, can say I, I don't know why they wouldn't do it mm. I don't understand I mean you, you, if you're a silt, you're notionally a leader of the profession um, and this got men and women silts and if it be the case that lots of very high powered barristers knew and didn't say anything then I mean, on the one hand, I do understand why you might not. Nobody wants to rock a boat. Particularly nobody wants to be the first person to rock a boat. And people don't know, I suppose, when (laughs) things happen to them necessarily, that it is part of what seems to be an incredibly widespread pattern of of his behaviour. And, you know, I can imagine a situation where, let's say, you were a barrister, even a silk, you went to his chambers, he tried to kiss you, you thought it was completely inappropriate, you said no... And then, you know, you wanted to be forgiving of that human failing. And so you were, and you didn't say anything. And I can understand that as a reasonable sort of human response. But I suppose what all of this publicity and the statement from the Chief Justice says is it's actually part of a widespread pattern. And the stories we seem to be hearing about are people who rebuffed him. And I just wonder how many people didn't rebuff him, how many people succumbed and... How many people did all sorts of things that might not necessarily have involved true consent, even if it was consent according to the criminal law? Because if you're putting the hard word on your associates and if your associates are then having sex with you, I doubt it's a fair dinkum consent, even if it might be a legal form of consent. So I don't know. Maybe this will be an issue that's come about that makes people think about those individual human behaviours in the context of their interpersonal relationships, in the context of, a, you know, a person's broader broader pattern of behaviour mm. and might sort of give people reason to think that there's a public interest to kind of make complaints about these things and not to be forgiving of what you might think is a human failing and just a grossly inappropriate bit of conduct. Manny, have you ever sat on the conduct committee for the Bar no. Association? No. Seven? No. Yeah, I I understand that you can make complaints and even to the Legal Services Commission, for example, in an anonymous way. Now, that might in its individual circumstance not go anywhere in any hmm. substance, but I would have thought a, a conduct body at a bar association or the Legal Services Commission are faced with a number of complaints of concerning behaviour, even anonymous ones relating to 
a particular member of the profession or the judiciary might then think this is something that we need to look into more. Mm. Um, and maybe speak to the... If, if someone is being the subject of persistent, numerous, anonymous complaints, then at the very least it might lead to a senior member of the bar, for example, sitting them down, taking them through the anonymous complaints and saying, what is going on here? <coughs> Even if, because of procedural fairness and so forth, they can't lead to proven instances of misconduct. It could be a great sort of advancement in doing it that way. Mm. It's it's interesting to think of ideals in this circumstance, in, in, in the context of this. So the ideal is that this kind of conduct doesn't occur. Now, I think less of it can occur, but I think that ultimately power always corrupts mm. and there will always be some people doing it. So then we need systems like to crime. respond to that. Well, like so, crime, so what's, always be with us. Yeah, mm. that's right. So, well, I think there's a step before that. What's the next ideal? And this ideal may be unachievable as well. But the next ideal is that a, a, an associate walks in or a, a young barrister walks into the silt's room and the silt's putting the hard word on her and she laughs in his face and says, you're being ridiculous and if you keep going with this nonsense, I'm going to ruin you, right? So she is completely empowered to push back. And again, that may be an unachievable ideal, mm. but that's another ideal we can talk about where the bar is a place where young women in particular, but also men, are so confident in their position on sexual harassment and it's so abhorrent that they can just whack a silk off or whack a judge off and say, go, I fuck off. And that's you know? where I think Kaifu's statement has the real potential to embolden people to feel confident in saying something, rebuffing someone, calling out inappropriate behaviour in a confident way. So I think, yeah, as I said before, I don't think we can underestimate the role that that statement um, can play for the betterment of the profession. Yeah, I agree. So how common is sexual harassment, do you think? Like in the legal profession? I have looked this up, but let me just look it up again. Uh, I think on a survey recently done one in three women reported having experienced sexual harassment and maybe one in 14 men or something like that. Let me check it. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the difference in numbers and what that relationship has to do with positions, with people in positions of power so that I, I would be interested to analyse whether or not that reflects the same differential in of people in positions of power. So that if you're if seventy five percent of the people in power are men and they and women are seventy five percent of the victims of sexual harassment, that would explain it's the power that explains the differential mm. rather than any, any aspect of gender. Mm. It's linked to bullying, I think, as well in the legal profession. And you know, these things have improved over the years, but you know, bullying in court by judges and magistrates towards practitioners. Um, I mean, that's long been a real phenomena and yeah. one that has never really been constrained and disciplined in a kind of formal way. I can't really think of any Judicial Commission complaints in New South Wales that were made on the basis of bullying. Yeah. There's certainly been some where inappropriate behaviour has been focused on as part of it. But, yeah, there's many judges and magistrates, less now in my estimation than before, mm. who are just complete bullies. Mm. And 
Also silks as well. Oh, there's some appallingly behaved silks. Senior junior barristers, mm. partners of law firms, senior associates of law firms. I think I think it's rife, and I think I think it has improved. I think part of it is the nature of the work. It's confrontational. It's adversarial. I'm scared to say it's improved, you know, Manny, only yeah, because it's right. it seems to have improved to me, but mm. I wonder if that's I think that's a function of, of seniority. Of Absolutely. So, Michaela Whitbourne, journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald, who's been a guest her. on the show. She's a friend uh, of the Whigs. She's a friend of the Whigs. She wrote an article last year about a survey that had been done uh, of 7,000 lawyers in more than 100 countries. Almost 30% of Australian lawyers who responded to the International Bar Association survey reported that they had been sexually harassed in the workplace. That's compared with 21.8% in the United Kingdom, 32.6% in the United States. The global average was 22%. And then on bullying, more than 60% of Australian respondents reported that they had been bullied at work. Oh, yeah compared with 51% in the UK, 50.3% in the US, 43% globally. That's pretty odd. So is it sexual harassment? Let's just run a kind of example. Is it sexual harassment if you're at a legal function, let's say the bench and bar dinner? If, let's say, you're a silk, you're a senior male barrister, you're talking, let's say, to a senior junior barrister throughout the evening, and then at the end of the night you lean over and whisper in her ear and suggest that she come back to your house and she rebuffs you. Is that sexual harassment by virtue of the fact that you're in a professional environment? Let's say you didn't sort of objectively have a basis to think that she might be interested in that. You've raised the idea of a, there's potentially a power imbalance. Is that sexual harassment? And I ask because it's one of a myriad of potentially highly ambiguous situations. And I know you can sort of say, well, you know it when you see it, and it is when it is, but it's hard to define in advance. But when we lay out these parameters of behaviour and we identify these sort of ills and mischiefs, um, it's not always as clear on the ground, is it? Um, And one person's definition of sexual harassment is another person's clumsy social interaction. Um, one of and the, I just wonder yeah. when I hear surveys like that, um, you know, we could be talking about different things potentially. Mm. Uh, people well, could be talking about different things. From the perspective of the person being harassed, right, that it's unwelcome and inappropriate. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's for the person engaging in that conduct may be difficult for them to discern in certain circumstances. Um, I would have thought in a lot of circumstances, though, it's pretty, it's pretty clear. It's obvious, yeah. One of my colleagues I was discussing this with pointed out, and, and she was sort of reflecting on her own experiences in life, and she pointed out that many, if not all, or most of the women at the bar are quite robust, and if they were in a bar and a man hit on them, they would have no trouble rebuffing that and so to go is your mattress making noises it never used to or is it sagging causing you to then it's time to get a new one get the best sleep at the best value with a nectar mattress prices start at just 499 dollars 
And you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Back to your example, Stephen. It can't be that any advance is that. The question has to come down to the power imbalance or relationship and, and that sort of thing, which is why I come back to... I think I think absolutely we need to have the complaint mechanisms in place, but wouldn't it just be nice if, and it may be unachievable, but if people had just felt that empowered to push back? And one of the issues that this colleague raised with me is the fact that the minute you make, the minute you're in this situation, what's going through your head is my career is over. I'm not going to yeah. get briefed. I'm not going to make money. Mm. And wouldn't it be nice if women in particular, but everybody just knew that if you made a complaint like that, you will be looked after. People will give you briefs. Your, the, your seniors won't turn their backs on you, and that's the sort of cultural change. And, mm. and is that? Do you see. perceive, Manny, that that cultural change has something to do with the representation of women in the profession and in the judiciary? So I don't think it's an accident that this happened, where it's a female chief justice coming out um, and taking this approach. And we know, for example, in New South Wales that much has been done to try to achieve a greater degree of representation on the bench um, by women. Mm-hmm. It's not so at higher levels of the profession, though, and in some ways uh, government focusing on appointing women to the bench has deprived uh, the profession of senior women at the bar in particular. Yeah. But even even saying all of that, when Stephen and I did the bar course five years ago, we were a class of 45 with 15 women. So you're never going to achieve 50-50% representation if you're not even entering that level of the profession at 50-50%. Obviously, universities have been graduating women, um, law graduates at much higher rates than men graduates for 20, 30 years or so. So at the entry level of the profession or the potential entry level at graduate stage, the numbers are there. But do you see that that representation of women in the profession and in the higher rungs of the profession is a critical antecedent fact to being able to secure that cultural shift? I do. Mm. And I, I, I think I think that I'm not sure whether the figures are quite this yet, but we're pretty close to having a majority of lawyers in New South Wales being women. We, so we are. We're yeah, over fifty percent yeah. in New South Wales. Uh, women lawyers are more than fifty percent of the profession. I think that happened last year for the first time. Yeah. And so if you take that into account, I, I think that give it a few years and there will be more women coming to the bar. I do think that the lack of the, the female silts being appointed to the bench quicker than they otherwise might have, which I think was an important step to take, did have that effect. I've had several female colleagues at the bar lament to me that they feel like they don't have the sort of mentoring that they might have otherwise got because the people who would have mentored them are now silks. Oh, sorry, are now, now judges and no longer silks. Mm. Uh, but I do, I mean, it's if you think about what, what's the High Court equivalent to, it's like the board of a multinational company. It's like the Prime Minister. It's like the highest levels of power. 
And that statement from the Chief Justice is almost inconceivable. It's almost inconceivable to see a statement of that calibre from any of those other power centres in our society, from a bank, for example. It's really something amazing. It doesn't smack of kind of, um, you know, something that's been prepared by a public relations expert. It's brutally honest and it's there. And I think there's, there's, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think that the changes are coming. And, I mean, for my part, I think it's, in essence, on us, like the, the three wigs here and other people at our level of, of the careers to make the cultural changes... Um, it's incumbent on those who are a bit further on in the, their careers, I think, to put into place the more formal mechanisms. But it's for us to make the cultural changes and to make sure that everybody feels like this kind of thing's not on. I think the corporate comparator might be Uber when <clears throat> sexual assault and sexual harassment issues mm. were revealed uh, in that workplace mm. and then there were some steps to bring about cultural yeah. change in a corporate context. There's some criminal activity as well. Mm. some criminal trials. But, I mean, I, I can't imagine the PM putting out a statement if one of his ministers was in a similar boat mm. saying, you have been believed. I just, I, it may happen, but I can't believe it. Manny, what about uh, stripping... Post nominals uh, and that kind of thing. So yeah, when this so the, the sorry, Jim. What is he? A QC and AO and a, what else? An He's AC a QC. and a QC. Mm. Uh, yes, companion of the Order of Australia, the highest one that's awarded because they don't award the knights mm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Attorneys General, by which I mean, I think the state and federal Attorney General are taking advice on whether or not Mr Hayden can be stripped of his status as senior counsel, uh, sorry, as Queen's counsel, um, he has apparently left the bar, so he didn't mm. renew his practising certificate. I had a look and I didn't have enough time to peruse the legal professional legislation as much as I wanted to to see whether or not, if you're not a barrister, you can still call yourself QC. Um, I don't know the answer to that under the legal professional legislation. I mean, it's a professional title that you're only meant to use... In the practice of law, right? Well... So I would have thought not. It's <clears throat> That's definitely the case for SC. Mm. The QCs were appointed, in effect, by letters patent by the Queen, or probably by the Viceroy. And um, Are you going to talk about your tweet, Manny? Because I found this really interesting. This, yeah, so I'm coming... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is... So I hope we're talking about the same tweet. All my, all my <laughs> tweets are interesting. Um, <laughs> reversion is the, impossible. Reversion is impossible, yes. Yeah. So... QCs, as, as opposed to SCs, are appointed by letters patent. Um, superior court judges are also appointed by letters patent. So superior court being Supreme Court and high court judges, they're given a commission by Her Majesty that they present to the Chief Justice and they become judges. Now, you can't hold two patents that are incompatible. And what ten, what um, there's a suggestion that the Q, if you're appointed a QC... Upon your appointment mm. as a judge, your you've given it up. You've, well, you, it merges your your appointment as a QC merges with your appointment as a judge and ceases to have effect. And there's an article by J. D. Morales. Um, Reversion is impossible from the Victorian Bar News, Volume eighty nine from nineteen ninety four fifty three, and that 
article says that reversion is impossible. Um, and it's finally having its moment in the sun, that it, article. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of the nerdy things I remembered when I first heard this, that I'd read this article at some point for some reason. Um, but it was certainly Sir Owen Dixon's view mm. that um, merger would occur and once you resign and seek to redraw or, or you your appointment comes to an end by way of statutory senility uh, or constitutional senility, your status of a Queen's Council has, has ceased. Mm. And so the only way to become a QC again is if further letters patent are issued. So well, he might not be a QC. But you know, mm. didn't QCs cease in 1994 anyway? So he couldn't... Yeah, but people it. with the existing title kept Oh, it. you can get it. But you can I think get you it. could choose to keep it, couldn't you? Or you could choose to replace it. I, th- I don't know. I think that you were a QC and... <laughs> From that point on, SCs were appointed. Mm. I don't know whether you had the choice, but you, the, the QCs, I don't know that you can appoint a QC anymore. I think there's a statutory mm. bar on yeah. the appointment of QC. So I don't know whether, if that's right and you lose your title as a result of merger, I don't know that they can issue you with further letters patent in New South Wales to make you a QC again. Mm. I don't know if there's a legislative hole in that. Sorry, a legislative carve-out that allows this to happen. So I don't know whether or not Mr Hayden is a QC. But mm. certainly Owen Dixon's view was that you were not. But it's different for SC's senior counsel because they are not appointed by patent, uh, letters patent from the Crown. That's right. So you're senior so, going to strip you, right? And that, is that why we have judges who are his or her honour, judge, so-and-so, SC, and they maintain their SC? No, so the reason we have... district court, isn't it? Non-superior court judges, so district court judges, maintain their status, and it's ever been thus, because they're Mm. not appointed in the same way. And so do magistrates. And so do magistrates. Mm. Whether or not Supreme Court justices... Who were SCs. Who were SCs Mm. or keep it is a vexed They don't use it, do they? They don't use it. their official sort of coro and stuff. no. Interestingly, sergeants at law, which are no longer appointed, they kept their entitlement to call themselves sergeant at law even when they were appointed because that was a rank that they attained at the bar rather than a patent from the Queen. So, so let's assume he's still got it. Can, can he be stripped of it? And would that be done, what, on the advice to the Governor-General or to the Governor? Yeah, I don't... So you can lose it in three ways, right? Surrender, revocation or merger. Yes. So he may have already so lost revoked. it through merger, mm. but it can be revoked or he could surrender it. So what about being struck off as a practitioner of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, which I assume is where he's admitted? My understanding is you can still be struck off even if you are no longer practising. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think um, a number of... <coughs> lawyers have written to the New South Wales Legal Services Commissioner asking him to look into whether or not Mr Hayden is still a fit and proper person who should remain on the the role. And, you know, sometimes, and I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily criminal offending, but sometimes people that engage in criminal offending are not struck off because the conduct is just extraneous to the practice of law and they don't pose a risk. Or there are other extenuating circumstances that justify not taking that action and maybe taking some other action like requirements for supervision and things like that. Yeah, but if you assume the truth of all of this, which is obviously a big assumption, but if you do, then he's supposed to have committed these acts 
in uh, the practice of law as a judge vis-a-vis his vulnerable associates, there would seem to be a respectable argument that that he might not be a fit and proper person on the basis that he might use the practice of law to continue those predations. Yeah. I assume that goes to the test. Uh, one of the one of the interesting things about and I, one of the interesting things about having a criminal record and being a legal practitioner in New South Wales uh, is that because of our convict past we had lawyers who had criminal records. And so from the time that this place started, um, it has not been automatically disqualifying. That's interesting. And the police, I think, were also formed from the convicts. There's a high court judgment that that goes through this. I'll try and dig it up and put it on the Facebook. I can't remember. So if... Just breathe a sigh of relief then. (laughs) If these complaints had had been made when he was still a judge... There's not a standing judicial commission at the federal level, so complaints presumably could have been made to the Attorney-General, who would then have the discretion to refer it to, I think, a parliamentary committee is ultimately the body that looks into uh, to misconduct by judges. Um, is this whole situation an argument for a judicial commission, a standing judicial commission at the federal level? Yeah, so a letter, in fact, has been sent, I think, last week or this week, by a group of prominent female lawyers and academics to the Federal Attorney-General asking for two things. One, an independent complaints body withstanding to hear all complaints about justices and a transparent appointments process, again, in the hands of an independent body. Um, I don't know what independent means. I imagine it means bureaucratic or outside of Parliament or extra-constitutional in some way. Um, I think the ways that <clears throat> I think the ways that you set out, Stephen, are the ways that it ought to be done, and, and I think it's a sad indictment of our parliamentary democracy that our parliament doesn't do its job in these sorts of scenarios. The thought of a young associate approaching a member of parliament or the attorney general saying, "Hey, this judge has been doing stuff to me." strikes everyone as absurd prima facie. Yeah, that's because, the problem with the right? system. And that's the problem with the system. Mm. And rather than set up in quote-unquote independent bodies, because what they, they're, they're bureaucracies, right? They're, then they're still going to be paid by the government. Um, so independence is, is some sort of quasi-independent thing. Parliament should just do its damn job. And See, I like the state system. I like the idea of a standing judicial commission, and I've used it before. I've made a complaint before. And... Just by virtue of the fact that it's there, it's got a website, it's got staff, it's successfully moved Parliament to remove a couple of people, it's well-known, um, it promulgates information about It can role. receive complaints from anyone, it doesn't have to be a legal anyone. practitioner. Doesn't... I think it really facilitates that level of access in terms of making complaints that just doesn't seem to be there at the federal level. Mm. It's you also... You can't um, find your way through the federal system, in effect. Mm, it's also not available in the Northern Territory, and an issue has come up there over a number of years where complaints have sought to be made against an Alice Springs-based judge, Greg Borchers, and this came to a bit of a head at the end of last year where ultimately um, the Northern Territory Chief Judge, Elizabeth Morris, finalised an investigation into the complaint but there wasn't that 
apparatus of a judicial commission to deal with and investigate the complaint. That was... um, The cases involved allegations of judicial misconduct by making racist remarks to defendants and also bullying lawyers who were appearing before him. And there were a number of examples from a six-month period put forward um, in a complaint, including, for example, um, in one case, the judge said to a defendant... Yesterday probably was pension day, so you got your money from the government, abandoned your kids in that great Indigenous fashion of abrogating your parental responsibility to another member of your family and went off and got drunk. Um, And there are other examples, but... And the complaint wasn't received. So a complaint was made to the Northern Territory Chief Judge and... Uh, ultimately, the verdict there um, was that the negative race-based generalisations um, did not cross a line that would warrant his sacking. <laughs> and there was, I think, upheld did he write it some... Uh, he said, oh, the, the, this is the, the response. Yeah. Some acceptance of the complaints in relation to the behaviour towards lawyers, um, but not um, it, it didn't ultimately Ugh. result in any removal action Lovely. or anything like that. But I, I think you're right. So there's no standing commission there, is that there right? There is no standing no. commission. And the Criminal Lawyers Association of the Northern Territory has called for um, that to be implemented in the Northern Territory. Yeah, and yeah. I think you're right, Steve, that... Whatever frailties there might be in terms of having a system of complaints that can be dealt with through an external body or a a body that sits um, outside of the court itself, although often the members of such a commission are heads of jurisdiction, for example, uh, I think it has the potential to have an impact on behaviour in any event, because judicial officers know that that yeah. apparatus is there yeah. and that they could be called to account through that system. So just interestingly, um, there's been a couple of examples where complaints have been made to those bodies, both in New South Wales and one in the ACT, mm. where the judicial officer has then resigned and that, in effect, has terminated the inquiry because the jurisdiction of these bodies uh, generally, or perhaps in all instances, is limited to a serving judicial officer. So it wouldn't uh, provide, for example, any sort of a forum to test these allegations against Hayden. Um, And the ones that I'm thinking about where they've resigned effectively and done away with the complaint process um, is Pat O'Shane in New South Wales, who had a complaint made by the Attorney General, I think, of the day. And she, I think she retired early, but she certainly retired and that complaint went away. Unless it goes criminal now. Yeah, that's right. And then Ron Carl who was the ACT Chief Magistrate, who had a judicial commission convened in respect of allegations against him. And then I think he reached his statutory retirement age and then it folded, in effect. Mm. I mean, my issue is not that it, it's not effective in some way. My issue is that it's anti-democratic and parliaments are empowered. I mean, they're constitutionally empowered to sit in judgment over judges. They are the representatives of the people. It's no good putting senior legal, top legal people under the eyes effectively of bureaucrats 
and other judges because putting them under other judges leaves them in a position where you get allegations or thoughts of cover-ups and kind of diminishes the whole profession and bureaucrats is just wrong. It's the same way that I, I object to ICAC because ICAC is a bunch of bureaucrats deciding on what our elected ministers do um, and what should happen if there, if there should be some sort of bureaucracy that exists, somewhere you can make your complaint, and that complaint should go to a select or standing committee of parliament that holds private hearings if necessary and looks at these things. And if it's they just, had sufficient staff, then they could, in, in effect, be a standing judicial commissioner, yeah, as just, long as they had the secretarial mm, support and mm. the investigators and all that sort of and thing. And do you mean to be able to impose sanctions of a lesser degree than removal? Because well, isn't that the kind of issue that... If there's a question of removal, well, yeah, it can go to Parliament and they can affect that sanction. But if we're talking about conduct of a lesser kind, then that's where there's this difficulty in well, how do you um, how do you deal with that? And so, and that's one of the issues that came up in the Northern Territory case, where the Chief Judge said. Although Judge Borchers didn't exercise the restraint, courtesy and civility required of a judicial officer, there being a lack of a formal complaints process, it would be inappropriate for her to make any formal determination. And because the comments that he'd made didn't disclose um, judicial misconduct warranting removal, that that was basically the end of it and she had no power to impose any other sanctions so that's the end of it. I mean it's not hard to do it's not hard for a member of parliament or a committee of parliament to say to the AG tell this judge that if she or he doesn't pull their head in and do x y and z I'm going to use my parliamentary privilege and bollock them right and that would I, I imagine have as much effect as anything else would and where it doesn't have that effect if it doesn't have that real sanction effect that judge has gone well beyond anything that you might deal by way of sort of sanctions being put on them anyway that so has implications can... for the independence of the judiciary doesn't it and there's not a lot of power under the state act is there at the moment <coughs> like the state judicial commission no they have to dismiss it unless they think that it really warrants either sending to parliament for removal or referring to the head of jurisdiction but yeah, because the complaint that I made was referred to the head of jurisdiction or that I was involved in making. That was referred to the head of jurisdiction who I'm not sure what they did, but presumably they spoke to the person about it and either congratulated them or reprimanded them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know that it's appropriate for a head of jurisdiction for, for one judge. It's, I'm just eating eating it. chip. it's eating it. God save us. For one judge to say to another judge what you did was wrong in that way, in a formal way. I think it's absolutely appropriate to a judge to go into another judge's chambers and say, stop doing what you're doing, you're being a dickhead. But I think it's something else entirely for a head of jurisdiction to be something, to be anything other than an administrative head of that court, which is their traditional role. They're not, they're first among equals. They're not Mm, a mm, higher mm, rank. mm. Uh, And in terms of, I mean, you say someone going and speaking in Parliament has effect on the independence of a judiciary. It does, but it's it puts their independence to the ultimate power, which is the representatives of the people, mm. as opposed to what is proposed, putting it in the hands of bureaucrats. Yeah. And, right? Mm. And yeah. I think a lot is given to our judges in terms of independence, you know, not least pensions. Um, and I personally... 
I don't have a problem with subjecting them to a bureaucratic process um, where you can weed out the unmeritorious complaints, you can conduct inquiries into the meritorious complaints, and you can then refer them on to the ultimate sanction, which is Parliament, if it warrants removal. Uh, I just think it's a measure of accountability that we need to have. And look, you're probably right, Manny, in terms about Parliament, but I'm just not confident that they'll ever step up and do it properly. Yeah. I mean, the other thing they suggested is the transparent appointment process. And they, um, again, by an independent body. And again, if you think about the American system for the appointment of, I think, all federal and Supreme Court justices there, where they have to go through the Senate and they're grilled. I mean, that... Is there an electoral process as well? There's, in certain certain states and certain jurisdictions have elections, uh, but you cannot be appointed to a federal court bench or a Supreme Court bench without the concurrence of the United States Senate. Mm. And, I mean, it looks nasty and dirty and it gets political and so on, and I don't know that I'm in favour of that kind of public process, but that's... That's what we're talking about. That that that's a review, a, tr- a truly, tr- truly, completely transparent. Now, if you imagine, if it's done by an independent bunch of you know bureaucrats, what you end up having is either that quite the same sort of thing that we see in the American system being done behind closed doors, or worse, you have a set of criteria that are applied as the best practice criteria that start to limit the type of people who go to the bench mm. to those who tick certain boxes. And that is not what we need on the bench. We need a diverse bunch of people. We need cantankerous people. We need you know all, all different manner of people, not just a bunch of people who tick boxes. I don't know about cantankerous, but... Yeah, let's well, screen out the cantankerous one. I like a little bit of cantanker. <laughs> I thought it was so sad that so many of his associates are not in the law. Oh, it's tragic. And I don't know much about High Court's associates as a cohort and what they tend to go on to do, but I imagine them as like this cohort of incredibly bright, ambitious young people who tend to go on to stellar careers in the oh, world. Oh, absolutely, it's really, that's my really experience. really, sad to think that so many of them would have left, you know, because of this. Mm. Um, and good on them for standing up for themselves mm. and for holding them to account. Mm. And the law's loss. Mm. And, you know, get a fucking glass office in the High Court. Let's start advocating glass offices. Or am I the only one in that one? Well, and I don't think any of us think that it necessarily happened in chambers. Okay. No, well, there were some chamber scenarios that have been reported. What about hot but desks? Anyway. Yeah, fucking hot desks, these judges. <laughs> All seven of them. They never know where they're going to be or their associates. Reflecting on what happened with Brett Kavanaugh in the US and noting what's been said about it was widely known within the profession that this was the type of behaviour that Mr Hayden had engaged in. Would it have been uncovered in that cross-examination context in the appointment process if it had been done US style? Maybe. In fact, it probably would have been because if it was such a big secret, then it would have become, presumably if we had selection processes like that here, they would become partisan to a degree and maybe someone would have tipped off the opposition and said the bloke's a creep, he's a lech, here's some information, ask him about it. Yeah. It, It is fundamentally a political act. The appointment of a justice is a political act and I mean I think I, I shy away from the American process because it's so dirty but oh I'm not advocating for it for sure I'm just posing that thought experiment if nothing else it's honest it gets it out there in public and you have to be pretty robust 
to get through that process and things will be uncovered and shown about you. And there's something to be said for that. Yeah, maybe it should be political. It shouldn't be big P political, but it probably should be small P political. Yeah. Because there's all sorts of qualities that judges have that I think are desirable and a lot of them that are appointed don't have those qualities and it's got nothing to do with party politics but it's got to do with you know political aspects about you know decision making and how society is organized Um, and those things might be legitimate things to examine in the context of that sort of thing as well as these issues of misconduct that at the moment are not even one skerrick a part of the process. Mm. You just get appointed because the Attorney-General wants to appoint you. The Attorney-General that appointed Hayden, I wonder if they knew. I wonder if they'd heard whispers. Wrapping up the show. Uh, well, it was very insightful on my behalf. Thank you very much for the uh, insight. Wigs. Fun things time. Going to go in a clockwise motion, starting with you, Emmanuel Kirkusherian. Tell me what your fun thing is for the next fortnight. Give me one fun thing that you're looking forward to in this uh, potentially uh, lockdown again. Manny, zone. if you need more thinking time, I've I got have, one. I have absolutely nothing. So really nothing that's your fun come thing? Come on, Manny. Uh, look, come back to me. Okay, bo- I've got something. I've got something. Manny can have some more. Tell time me, tell me, Felicity Graham. I am going to be reading a book. Yeah, that's not cruel. that hasn't been released to the public. Oh yet. yes, yes, yes. Exclusive. It's called The Truth Hurts. Yeah, it's by Andrew Bow. Yeah, a barrister colleague of ours. Yeah. Uh, the subtitle is An Expose of Imperfect Justice. Have you not read it yet? I haven't read it yet. I've read it. Me too, it's I'm great. I'm really yeah. excited about yeah, reading it. sweet. And for people who want to get in, uh, they can pre-order it and then we're going to do a review of it on this very podcast and yep. so people can, can read and... Well, um, I'll save my next question for that then. What's your next question? I was going to say, who do you think the book is, is targeted towards? Well, I haven't read it yet. Okay, yeah. That's why I'll save for the next week. <laughs> so, yeah. But the other two have. No, I think it's a fucking awesome fun thing. And shout out to Andrew Bow for writing that. Uh, Stephen Lawrence, the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo. My fun thing is I've got some mates coming to stay with me on the weekend. Oh, how fun. And they uh, presumptuously sent me the uh, website link to order tickets for the zoo, for the Dubbo Zoo. Mm-hmm. Is the zoo open? The zoo has reopened, but mm-hmm. you need to order online because mm-hmm. spaces are limited. Um, but I'm not going to go to the zoo with them. The Actually, Dubbo Zoo I is know fantastic. that zoos are open because I argued in a case this week that oh, yes, because aquariums are brothels. open, brothels are open. Brothels are oh, okay. Uh, people can you go know. to a stadium <laughs> with 10,000 others. Uh, then protest activity, which is an essential service to our democracy, should and what also is that, be allowed to... What was to, the defence called? Okay. What, was the, what was the argument that you, that you called it? The brothel argument? No. The, the, when, we, when we walked <laughs> into the no room merits. to record tonight, you, 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 merits. Is it merits? Oh, on the merits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, did you yeah. win that case? I did. Congratulations. Okay. What was the case called? It's called Commissioner of Police and Gray. What's the Taylor citation? Gray. 
G R A Y. G R A Y. Medium neutral. Twenty two New South Wales Supreme Court. Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Sorry. New South Wales Supreme Court. Jeez. Well, you're supposed to know that off the. Of course you are. I know the citation of every case I've ever appeared in. Oh, you do really? not. No, of course I don't. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a fucking break. I was It's currently... How did we go from the zoo to... How did we go from my fun thing to well, Felicity's Because merit. Well, no, well, zoos and aquariums are open. <laughs> I knew thing. that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, you continue. What have you got planned? Yeah. So I'm not going to go to the zoo because I've been to the zoo probably three times yeah. in the last six months. You opened it, didn't and you? And I don't necessarily want to go every time someone that I know wants to go. Right. But yeah, looking forward to having my friends. Stay. I'm having a barbecue Saturday night. Um, fun, fun, fun. Fun thing. Manuel Kukasharian. I have nothing. Oh, my God. I have absolutely nothing. I've got a lot of work in the next two weeks. <laughs> I just spent a few days in Newcastle, which was fine. Hey, there you go. I'm lamenting the fact that I'm not on my honeymoon in Europe, which oh, is yeah. where I planned to oh, be. Oh, right now. I'm on a Greek oh. island Bummer. right now on my honeymoon. Oh, that's so devastating. Happened? COVID. COVID. <laughs> I guess you get away, but then. <laughs> COVID. No, COVID. So I'm both unmarried and not on holidays. Mate. Yeah. What a pain. Oh, you haven't had your wedding yet. No, well, we um, Claire's parents are in Western Australia, and so they can't even come. Otherwise, you know, we would consider having a smaller wedding, but, you know. Bummer. So be, I keep right. meeting all these people that are stranded in Australia because of COVID. I met uh, two people in Dubbo last weekend at a street party I went to, a COVID-19 safe street party, where everyone had a table at the, on the road sort of immediately in front of their house. Oh, yeah. And everyone stayed socially distant. But yeah, they're stranded because of they came to COVID for holidays from Germany and mm. they've been able to go back. Hmm. Because and their uni's shut over there. And they're in Dubbo. They're in Dubbo, yeah. yeah. Poor buggers. I mean, good on them. It's a great place to be. No, it's, it's the worst place to be. It's been the best thing about COVID. I'm getting the wrap up here. I'm sorry. It's time to end, Steve. Sorry, we're going to end it there. Ladies Just and gentlemen. One more fun thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ladies so and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the number one podcast for five days in June. We shall see you in a fortnight. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here for the final time. I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns.